Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have an interview with Dr. Sarah D. Wald. Dr. Wald is an associate professor of English and environmental studies at University of Oregon and whose teaching and research focuses on the relationship between race and the environment, immigration and citizenship, food studies, environmental justice, and nature in popular culture. Dr. Wald's first book and the focus of today's conversation is The Nature of California, Race, Citizenship, and Farming Since the Dust Bowl, which focuses on the paradoxical ways that farmers and farm workers in California have been represented from the 1930s to the start of the 21st century. It examines the ways that depictions of farming and farm labor have never just been about those who labor, but have also presented a site to think through national belonging. The book exposes the process by which some people come to be seen as legitimately American while others are named as aliens, suggesting the ways in which the categories of natural and unnatural structure the U.S. system of racial gatekeeping. Let's go meet Dr. Sarah D. Wald. Um, so we're recording this, uh, has it been like, it's been a week, it's maybe been a week since the shooting in Atlanta. Um, and, um, we've talked on this podcast before about, uh, kind of legacies of anti-Asian sentiment in California and how kind of integral to California history that is. Um, and many people don't know, or maybe they do know, but only partially that, uh, uh, Asian people, particularly Japanese people, um, were were huge parts of farm laborers in California history. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why you think that misconception is there, or that lack of understanding of the kind of the diverse history of farm labor in California? Yes, the historian Natalia Molina has this really useful term called racial scripts, where she talks about the ways in which we have these particular categories about racial ideologies that can change over time and get applied to new groups, become activated, um, become disactivated for periods of time. And a lot of the history of California agriculture can be understood through this framework of racial scripts. And there is a long history of Asian and Asian American farm workers in California. And that includes a number of Chinese workers, that includes Indian workers, that includes Filipino workers, that includes Japanese, Japanese American workers, um, both as farmers and as farm workers. When you're talking about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II in the U.S., at the moment that that happened, between one half and one third of Japanese and Japanese Americans in California were working in agriculture, either as farmers or as farm workers. So it's a very important history. And when we think about the UFW and Cesar Chavez and the farm workers movement, many people don't know that it was actually the Filipino workers and the Filipino workers union that went out on the strike first with that uh, famous grape boycott. That strike started with Filipino workers and then the union um, with Mexican workers and Chavez joined into that and they sort of joined together, which is this long legacy of Filipino farm labor activism in the U.S. that has fallen out of popular knowledge. 
And I think when we're thinking about Asian and Asian American farm workers in California, we have to think about the long legacy of anti-Asian sentiment in the US that's really in many ways foundational to the nation and the anti-Chinese movement in California that really struck out against farm workers and when um, and led to the rise of Japanese immigrant farm workers and then Filipino farm workers in California. And there's a huge amount of anti-Asian violence in the late 1800s, the throughout the 1900s um, against Asian and Asian American workers. And so when we really think about the roots of the anti-Asian violence we're seeing reignited today, we have to, I think, go back to U.S. immigration policies, the Chinese Exclusion Act, and the history of um, Asian American exclusion, Asian exclusion, and then the racial politics that label Asian Americans as perpetually foreign, and and understand that those roots are central to Asian anti-Asian violence today and anti-immigrant sentiment today. Yeah, I I wonder if the reason why it's is dropping out of popular knowledge is that you know the current demographics of farm labor uh, that we have in California has moved away from that. Um, and I wonder if that, you know, it's, it's partly the present that's influencing how, where we focus in the past. Um, but, you know, the, the second part that I wanted to talk about within that question was, I, I'm just, I'm trying to figure out, I guess, um, if the stories aren't being told, um, or that there's just a lot more stories being told of Latinx communities in farm labor. There are some people who tell the stories of Asian and Asian American farm laborers. Um, you have writers like uh, David Mas Mazumoto, who has written a lot about his experience as a Japanese American farmer and his family's history in California working in agriculture. Valerie Matsumoto has, uh, is a historian who has written about uh, Japanese family farms in California. There's not as much scholarship and creative writing as there as exists about Latinx farm farming experiences in California, but the stories are there and they are being told. They're just not being heard as much. Um, and you're right that it's partly, I think, because of these changing demographics, but I don't think that is the only way, only reason those histories um, become erased. I think that there is a continual forgetting in the United States, a convenient forgetting of histories of racial violence and the racial violence that marked the whole West Coast around Asian Americans. And it gets reduced in the popular culture knowledge to this sort of vague understanding of internment, which is really a massive incarceration project that dispossess people of land that they never really got back. Um, and so I think there's a forgetting about that, the history of, of violence that serves stories of American exceptionalism. And I think that there's a model minority myth, right, that rises in the US that obscures the true diversity of Asian American experiences in the nation, the true history of Asian American racism, and the true, um, the, the ongoing diversity 
of Asian American economic experiences in the U.S. that takes this category of Asian American and sort of erases the true complexity of the different experiences people who can claim that category fall into. Yeah, I actually have this book right next to me by uh, Lassen and Nada. Uh, I forget the title is uh, Before the War, um, a great poet of a uh, Japanese poet from the Fresno area that actually uh, went and uh, taught in uh, Oregon. I don't know if at Oregon State or at University of Oregon, um, but um, writes uh, beautiful poetry and, uh, you know, ultimately uh, very tragic poetry about uh, camps and um, what that was like in the desert. Um, I um, want to talk more broadly about misconceptions about farm labor uh, beyond just demographics and who was involved. What are some common misconceptions or misrepresentations uh, that are made of farm labor? I think one of the biggest misconceptions I encounter about farm labor is this idea that farm workers are unskilled laborers. Farm labor is very much a skilled form of labor. The, um, there's so much skill involved in doing the labor and doing the labor at the speed that's required at surviving the conditions, surviving the various kinds of exposures that happen. Those are all forms of knowledge that really matter. And I think it fits into a larger misrepresentations of farm workers as not having knowledge to contribute. You know, who are the real experts on farm labor in this country? It is the farm workers. When we think about environmental justice, farm workers have so much knowledge. They are at the forefront of so many environmental issues in this country. And one of the reasons that I've turned to look at literature and stories by and about farm workers is because of all of the larger knowledge that farm workers have, not only about how to pick lettuce, but about how our society functions and how environmental racism operates in the United States. How have those uh, misconceptions changed over time? One moment in history that I think is really interesting to think about misconceptions is during the Great Depression, you have this brief period of time where white workers become demographically dominant in California's fields. And what you have is a lot of white progressives think that these white workers are not going to take it. They think that they're not gonna stand up and they are gonna push back and not take the exploitation that the Mexican and Mexican-American workers, that the Asian and Asian-American workers are experiencing in the fields. And they're completely wrong that when you think about the radical labor activism in California's fields in the 1930s, it's the Filipino workers, it's the Mexican workers. It's not by and large the white workers. They're not leading the charge in the way that white progressives imagine. They're more likely to focus on trying to um, get the right to, to get an address, to get to vote and to sort of have a different kind of um, sort of a focus on electoral politics rather than labor activism. And when you think about the Mexican workers who were coming up in the 1930s, many of them have experience with labor radicalism in Mexico that they bring with them to the United States. And so there's a real misconception at the time that these white workers are going to be the force for change, and they're really not. It's the Mexican and 
Filipino and Asian American workers who are really pushing for change in this period. Do you think that has something to do with uh, the white workers uh, predominantly uh, kind of escaping the Dust Bowl and that experience of instability and then seeking uh, stability versus pursuing political uh, progress in, in the fields? I think that when you're thinking about, I think there's a history with, particularly with the Mexican workers where they're bringing labor radicalism with them. That's a different kind of history. Right. Um, I think certainly you do have some people who are coming from the Dust Bowl region who are quite radical. And I'm thinking about Sonora Bab, who's another author in the 1930s, who's engaged in these movements and, um, you know, writes a novel at the same time as John Steinbeck. I think the white workers get a lot more public attention, uh, partly because of their whiteness and partly because they're white. People like John Steinbeck think they're going to that the public is going to be more sympathetic to them. So you have in many of Steinbeck's works, he's using the stories of Mexican and Mexican American farm workers and he's turning them into white characters because he thinks the public's gonna be more sympathetic and that's going to help make changes for farm workers more broadly. I see. So when you're thinking about sources and when you were compiling sources to kind of do research, because you're coming, at this, maybe not from a, you know, you're not a history professor, um, you know, this maybe thinking about different mediums. Um, I think most people, when they think about this topic area, they just think Steinbeck. That's maybe their only, um, and we're, we're going to talk about Carrie McWilliams in a little bit, but um, when we're just talking about literature. I think Steinbeck is the only one that comes to mind. Maybe if you live in Fresno, like I do, you know, William Saroyan. Um, but beyond that, there there really isn't maybe a, a, a comment like a a canon of literature that people are familiar with. So, what are some names of some writers uh, beyond the ones you've already mentioned uh, that should be kind of a more central should have a more central place in our canon of this kind of topic area? Absolutely, need to be reading Helena Maria Viramontes' novel Under the Feet of Jesus, which comes out in the mid '90s, and um, I think and his face focuses on a young girl, Estrella, who's a farm worker at the time of its publication. It gets called like a Chicana Grapes of Wrath. It's much more than that. Um, I think it's a, one of the most important environmental texts of the 20th century. Sherry Moraga has a play called Heroes and Saints that I believe we should be reading. Carlos Bulasan's America is in the Heart is a classic of Filipino literature. It's also a really important text for thinking about farm labor and farm movements in the United States. Hisa Yamamoto is a Japanese American author noted for her short story collections um, and also does a lot of other kinds of publications of essays. But I think her short stories need to be a central part of what we're looking at. Um, there's, you know, many people talk about farm worker literature being a, almost a subgenre of Chicano and Chicano literature because there's so many texts that we could be turning to. Um, and that's really, even if we're just talking about the West Coast, these kinds of texts, if you go broader nationally, there's a whole different set of, of literature and experiences that we could think about um, in this world. Yeah. So what, what is the problem if you're trying to, you know, what, what, what limitations are you going to bring if your only understanding of farm labor is the grapes of wrath? 
The Grapes of Wrath is a really powerful novel, but it's a novel that's written in a particular historical moment about a particular set of, a particular demographic, right? It's um, a novel in which we don't see the real legacy of racial exploitation in California. Um, and I, you know, I think it's really useful to compare The Grapes of Wrath to Sonora Babs, whose names are unknown. And Sonora Babb is a woman who is writing her novel at the same time as Steinbeck. Unlike Steinbeck, she's actually from Oklahoma and her novel includes excerpts from letters that her mother wrote her about the Dust Bowl. She had a contract with Random House and she was working for Tom Collins, the Tom at the government camp that you know Steinbeck dedicates his novel to. Well, Tom Collins was sharing with Steinbeck, there's pretty good reason to believe, Babs' notes. And so Steinbeck's having access to her notes. He gets published first. Random House pulls the book. They say to Bab, you know, we're, there's not room in the market for a second book. So Whose Names Are Unknown doesn't get published until 2004. And I think one of the things that's really an exciting, there's a several exciting differences between the novel that I think are really illustrative of some of the limitations of only telling the Grapes of Wrath story, even if you're going to another white author writing in 1939 about Dust Bowl farm workers. One is that the leaders that Bab shows of the farm workers movement is are people of color. She has a black leader and a Filipino leader, and there's reason to think that Bab modeled these on real leaders in the field. Um, her white characters learn to grapple with their own white privilege and their history of race and learn to learn from the people of color who've dealt with this exploitation. There's a gender politics in the novel that's quite progressive. Um, people have called it sort of an incipient eco-feminism and thinking about uh, there's an, the ways in which the characters need to learn to work in partnership with the earth in the same way that the most successful marriages in the novel are partnerships rather than exploitation. Um, and there's also the future is not solely in California in the text. So half the novel is in Oklahoma, but it isn't a sense where the characters sort of move to California and Oklahoma is forgotten. There's a sense that there's a radical possibility in Oklahoma as well, that Oklahoma isn't the past, but there's a possibility of future there. Um, and so I think just even in that one comparison, you can see that there's so much more that could be done or told with the story of the Grapes of Wrath um, and the story of farm workers in California. Yeah, so there's obviously a great repository of fiction about this world that, you know, that needs to be out there, but there's also a great world of nonfiction too. And Carrie McWilliams is one of those names that comes up immediately when I think about this is factory and factories in the field. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, your perspective on Carrie McWilliams work in this area? And then if there's other great journalists that have done work um, on this uh, topic. Yeah. Carrie McWilliams is in many ways an unsung hero of the 20th century US left. Uh, his name is not as widely known as it should be. He is involved in so many of the most important social movement struggles of the 20th century. And Factories in the Field comes out in 1939 alongside Grapes of Wrath. And one of the things that Carrie McWilliams does, you know, it gets, it gets sort of marketed as the truth behind 
the Grapes of Wrath. And I think it helps make Grapes of Wrath more powerful because you've got this text that comes out at the same time that is seen as the nonfiction companion. But Steinbeck disappears in some ways after the Grapes of Wrath comes out. It's Carrie McWilliams who gets on the radio. It's Carrie McWilliams who goes around and gives public speeches. He uses the popularity of the Grapes of Wrath and the controversy around this novel to push for change. And so he doesn't just put the book out there in the world, but he pushes and pushes and pushes, you know, throughout his life for change. And he follows up Factories in the Field with Ill Fares the Land, and he gets appointed in, to, um, in the California state government. And he credits his research on Ill Fares the Land, which is national in scope, and his experience in the California government in what he calls his racial revolution, where he transforms his ideas of race. And the books he publishes in the 40s are really about racism in America. There are a, in, in all sorts of different ways. And he continues to change over time his politics, right? Any of us as individuals, our politics develop over time as we are exposed to new social movements, as we do more reading, more work, more talking to people. Um, so Factories in the Field is a really important text and what McWilliams does with it and Grapes of Wrath is really important, but it's not the end of Carrie McWilliams' story. And Factories in the for for Field, I think has been really influential, even if people don't always know McWilliams' name and they don't always know the book, most people have are familiar with that phrase, factors in the field. And the way that McWilliams sets up a political analysis in that book about how we understand the history of California agriculture, I mean, I think that's still valid in many ways. Um, I think there are some shortcomings of the work, which of course, there are, I mean, it's almost 100 years old now. Of course, our ideas about how we would think about the past have changed. Um, I don't think that makes McWilliams less important or less progressive or the book less important or less progressive. Um, yeah. Who are some other nonfiction writers ab about this topic area that uh, can, can bring light? Um, I know we've been talking about fiction. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I would suggest that there's so much good history that's happening right now around um, the Bracero program in particular, and there was a huge number of books that came out based on oral histories of the Bracero program, and it's a struggle to say just one, but I think a really important book is Maria Loza's Defiant Braceros, and I, I think the work on Bracero program is really important right now because there's all this talk about whether we're going to have a new guest worker program. Um, under the Biden administration. And so it's important to understand how many abuses happened under the last Bracero program. And Maria Loza's Defiant Braceros is an important book in part because of her focus on oral histories, um, but also in part because she's really interested in the ways that Braceros resisted the sort of normative frameworks that they were pushed into. Um, so she talks about transnational labor organizing. She's one of the, uh, writes one of the earliest, the books that's dealing with the earliest accounts of indigenous workers, right? We got this switch we talk about today from who's coming to do work in the fields and the rise of indigenous Mexicans like Oaxacans in the fields, people who are not speaking Spanish as their first language. In the Oregon, for example, we've got 23 indigenous languages spoken um, among workers in the field at least. Um, 
So she's doing that work back in the Bracero program. She's also looking at different histories of sexuality that Braceros brought with them or found here. And so in this way, these defiant Braceros are defiant of many different kinds of things. And I think that can be really instructive. Uh, there's also a number of books by medical anthropologists or that are looking at health, which is really important. Farm workers face a number of health challenges. Sarah Brown Horton has a book called They Leave Their Kidneys in, Their field, in the Fields that talk about chronic illness structural racism and heat stroke. And I think that's really important to understand um, what we might call the social determinants of health and the ways that farm workers are at the apex of these kind of environmental illnesses from pesticide to heat stroke and also other forms of uh, chronic illness like hypertension that really um, come out of their experiences of racism and farm labor in the U.S. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I've lived in the big cities in California and, and they think about, uh, you know, the Central Valley in certain ways. Part of what bothers me about that is, is uh, you know, these, these people here are, you know, your, 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 your life expectancy goes down if you live in the Central Valley of California. Um, and that, whether that's what, what we know about that and where that comes from exactly, um, is, you know, causation is impossible to prove, but, um, there is, uh, lower rates here of life expectancy in California, higher rates of asthma, um, all sorts of things that kind of come with, uh, being this close to the farmland, given it's, you know, the industrial style farming that we do. Um, and it's something that, uh, is taken for granted. I was thinking about this before we started about uh, kind of how we think about uh, the animal rights movement um, and, you know, kind of the growing vegetarian and vegan culture and looking at factory farms in a really interesting way. Um, but I don't, I don't see a strong uh, a push uh, to look at farm labor in that same way by those same people. Uh, who are eating more of those people's, you know, eat. I mean, we could talk about, you know, whether we classify the meatpacking industries in the Central Valley as part of the agriculture, you know, in the sense that we're talking, um, even though they're inside on these giant assembly lines. Um, it's still farming. Um, but I, I, I just want to talk for a minute about this kind of difference in how we, you know, this burgeoning, you know, expanding consciousness around animals' rights, but uh, kind of this neglected uh, feature of that, which is that not thinking about the people picking the vegetables for those vegetarian restaurants you go to. Um, so this is maybe the speculation game, but what do you speculate is kind of the source of that uh, kind of blind spot in a lot of the environmental conscious discourse around this stuff? You know, I think you're absolutely right that workers' rights often fall out of the discourse around animal rights and environmental sustainability in the food movement. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've talked about elsewhere is in Michael Pollan's The Omnivores to Malama, there's a lot of conversation about um, knowing the names of particular animals that we learn about at particular farms, but we never learn about the names of particular workers. They disappear in the background. And when he's talking about industrial organic in California's fields, 
he mentions these Mexican women sort of hunched over in the field. And this is the indictment of industrial organic, but we don't get their stories. And it is really important to know that when you're buying organic, yes, the workers aren't being exposed to pesticides, but that doesn't mean that they're less exploited in other ways or that they have easier lives or fair compensation. Organic farms aren't necessarily any better for farm workers beyond the pesticides um, than another form of farm. And I think the same, Margaret Gray has this book called Labor in the Local War, where she talks about labor conditions on small farms, right? We have this idea, I think a lot of urban consumers that you can go buy your food at the farmer's market, you're getting organic food or you're buying from a small farm or you're buying local and therefore it's going to be better for everybody. But that ne isn't necessarily the truth for farm laborers. And so I think part of it is that laborers just become invisible. They're sort of assumed that if you're doing this other thing that's good for the environment or good for the economy, that it's gonna be good for workers. And we need labor regulations. We need strong regulations that are actually um, implemented and enforced. We need immigration reform and a pathway to legalization. Like that's going to make a difference for workers. Uh, and you can't just go to the store and um, buy something with an organic label and assume you're helping workers. So I think part of that is the invisibility. Um, and I think it's also important to think about we have this story in the United States that people of color aren't environmentalists, that white people are environmentalists, and that people of color are kind of unlikely environmentalists. But scholarship has shown us that that's not true, that there's a long history of Latinx environmentalism, Asian American environmentalism, and Black environmentalism, Indigenous environmentalisms that haven't been recognized as forms of environmentalism. And when you think about DDT and the movement against DDT, and the first Earth Day, the UFW and the farm workers movement was at the center of that. The DDT was banned first in California because of farm workers movements, not because of white environmentalists concerned about birds. And when you think about the first Earth Day, the UFW was very much engaged in those conversations. And so there's a a way in which I think we need to recognize that farm workers themselves have environmental ethics and are not unconcerned with um, the more than human world and life that's not human. Um, and I think what do we, what happens when we think about our environmentalism that orients more towards those other forms of knowledge and what kinds of possibilities does that open up for environmentalism in the 21st century? Yeah. Let's pedal back for a second and talk a little bit about the, uh, the rise of the Bursera program. Um, so where, where did that come from um, and how did that change, uh, in, particularly in that period, uh, how did that change the way people look at farm laborers? So the Bracero program as a formal, the, the formal program we're usually referring to comes about during World War II and it sticks around until 1964. And it initially is sort of shown as this idea that we're going to bring in farm workers during World War II. This is going to be Mexico's contribution to World War II efforts by putting people in the fields as the white people in the fields are going off to fight. It obviously sticks around for decades longer. And there's a lot of concern among labor organizers that 
the braceros, well, A, there's all the kinds of exploitations that are happening in the fields that, that the bracero laborers are experiencing. And there's also a concern that because the braceros are here on this guest program and they can be deported, that this vulnerability around deportation is gonna inhibit labor organizing. Um, and I think it creates a tension in labor organizing between people who are here as guest workers versus people who are living here more permanently or have different kinds of legal statuses that the UFW continues and exploits in ways that I think ultimately harms the UFW and the farm workers movement. They're not more embracing of undocumented workers earlier. Uh, the Braceros themselves are quite involved in labor organizing. And that's one of the things I love about Maria Loza's book is that she documents this um, trans border, this um, transnational labor organizing effort of the Braceros um, that Ernesto Galarza, who ultimately turns against the Bracero program and really does a lot of work to show the exploitation that's occurring, um, is first you know, very interested in this uh, cross-border um, transnational labor efforts. So um, I think that's a big shift. And of course, this comes after the Dust Bowl migration, right? Fairly quickly after the Dust Bowl migration. Um, and I think when we talk about the absence of people in the fields with World War II, I think we need to not only talk about the Dust Bowl and people going off to fight, but again, this story doesn't get told. We need to talk about the incarceration of Japanese Americans and Japanese farmers and farm workers into these essentially concentration camps and that moving people out of the fields as well. And of course, then there's all these disturbing programs within internment camps or these concentration camps, right, that we sort of call internment camps where people are then asked to go out and serve as farm laborers uh, across the Intermountain West. And so that history needs to be tied into the story we tell about the Bracero program as well. Why did it last so long? Um, and and when, so there's two parts of my question. Why did it last so long? And did, did, was it at least during the war period, was there a, a, a kind of a more positive uh, image that Bracero workers had maybe in California because there was this element of we're all sticking together and, in the war, I mean, I'm thinking about you know in California the ship uh, shipbuilding industries in the Bay Area and uh, in Richmond and in uh, whatever that neighborhood is in San Francisco, but this kind of collective like we're we're doing this together. Yes, well, I think the answer about why the Bracero program lasts for so long is because it's beneficial to employers, right? That it um, allows people to be exploited. Uh, people are not getting great food. Their housing conditions are not fantastic. They're tied to an employment. They've got a kind of jump contract. And if they do that, then they face deportation. Um, so there's all sorts of issues. And I think at the moment that the Bracero program comes in, there's a lot of hope. I think some of the labor organizers initially had hope. Okay, well, we have this program with all these regulations that's going to protect people. And of course, that doesn't happen. Um, so I think that and from the perspective of labor organizers, they very quickly realize that the program isn't doing what it's supposed to do or isn't protecting people the way you would protect uh, or you would think they should be protected. Um, there is, I think, 
as well this idea at the beginning of the program that this is this modernization program, right? This idea that these braceros are gonna come to the US and they're gonna learn new farming techniques. They're going to be modernized and gain something that they're gonna bring back to Mexico, um, which again, doesn't fit with people's real experiences all the time when they come here. Although it does fit with, you know, some people did have that kind of experience. Um, and the Bracero program, I think, also is tied into, when we talk about the undocumented immigration and its rise in the US, I think we have to talk about the Bracero program. It encourages people to come up to the US-Mexican border, um, some of whom get taken into the Bracero program, but others are now at the border in these towns in Mexico, where if they need to get work, they need to cross the border. It encourages people who are here, or who are being exploited, if you jump contract and stay past your contract, then you're undocumented, you're here as an unauthorized worker. Um, and so I think it helps create this um, movement of undocumented workers as well. I mean, that's not the only story when we talk about undocumented workers. I think you also have to talk about conditions in sending countries and the US culpability for those conditions. Um, but the Bracero program certainly plays a role in that story as well. Yeah, it's a complicated history. And I, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about. I mean, obviously, you know, the development of these border towns, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that kind of top belt of Mexico is not a fun place to live in. Um, and there's gotta be reasons that people would want to live there. Um, and while I'm not familiar with, uh, the development of some of these border cities, you know, I'm thinking of like places like Juarez or uh, Tijuana. Um, I'm sure that uh, these moments uh, in time uh, when there's a shift or a signal from another country um, that things are going to develop uh, probably aided their development. Um, but I want to kind of transition and talk about uh, thinking about eco-criticism. Um, and it's, it's an interesting, uh, a concept to think about, you know, especially in California, because, you know, the environment is such a a fraught thing in our history. Um, it's becoming, a, you know, kind of a choke point, you know, whether we talk about the history of water in California, talk about, you know, uh, how how fires have been managed in California. Um, so what what uh, what dimension does eco-criticism bring to uh, looking at uh, farm labor or just California history uh, in its entirety. Yes. Um, so eco-criticism, just for any of your listeners who aren't familiar, is the study of literature and the environment most broadly. Um, and when I came to it, I was first really compelled by the work of Lawrence Buell, who argues that the environmental crisis is not a crisis primarily of science or politics, but it's a crisis of the imagination. Right, so we need to understand how historically we have understood the relationship between people and the environment. We need to find new and better ways of imagining that relationship. And that's the sort of founding promise in many ways of eco-criticism. I really was influenced and took a left turn in my own uh, engagement with eco-criticism through the work of a environmental justice scholar, Laura Polito, who talks about how we need to study environmental racism, not only because studying environmental racism helps us understand the environment, but it helps us understand racism and how racism functions in the US through the environment. And I think both of those are really important frameworks for understanding 
the environment and environmental imaginings in California. Um, I think it helps us understand, well, when I, we think about how we understand our relationship to the more than human world and many different ways in which we can understand that world, we sort of open up, as I mentioned earlier, of Latinx environmentalisms, we need to engage with indigenous environmental knowledge, um, of which there's been a tremendous amount of work, uh, especially around the history of fire management in California. There's all these different kinds of stories that have existed in California's past and present that we can look to to understand where we are today and imagine where we are, where we want to be in the future in ways that aren't just the disaster narrative, right? The thinking of Mike Davis's ecology of fear and all of the movies we have or Los Angeles goes up in smoke in so many different ways or- Or the San Andreas Fault opens and we fall through it. I remember, I do remember having uh, an ecology of fear when I was living in San Francisco and I was, I was living in a, it's a 10, 15 story building and I was on the 11th story and I experienced my first earthquake and that uh, that brought the ecology of fear uh, to my stomach. So I, I, I get it. And, you know, for for people that uh, listen to this podcast, we had uh, someone on uh, um, Gary Young, who's a poet from the Santa Cruz area, um, and they they've had tremendous tragedy. Uh, with the fires there. So it's, it's a real thing. Um, how, how does that play into uh, farm labor and thinking about eco-criticism? I think there's a couple of different ways in which we can think about this. One is I think that our ideas about nature in this country are very politically powerful. They're powerful in the ongoing romanticization of the American farmer and the legacy of Jeffersonian farming, right? And we know that California was never in that ideal nation of small farms. There was We've got a history of indigenous land that was brought into the U.S. from Mexico and as a result of the Mexican-American War, where Mexican, large Mexican land grants then transferred over. Um, so that there's that history of romanticizing farm farming and the farmer that leads to the invisibility and exploitation of farm workers. I think there's also a way in which we use this discourse of claiming that things are natural or unnatural all the time in the US. And I always tell people, be suspicious. Anytime someone tells you something's natural, think about who's winning and who's losing in that argument. And there's a way in which we imagine farm labor to be naturally better. We imagine, historically, Mexicans have been imagined as being naturally better at stoop labor in ways that, you know, A, are just not true and are racist, and B, justify, the ill treatment of farm workers. Um, and so this discourse around nature and who's naturally part of the nation state and in what ways I think structured for a long time our history of race in the US and our history of immigration in the US, right? What kind of this idea about purity in the US as a and wilderness is very much a racial discourse of nature that structures immigration. I also think that the history of eco-criticism is important, or more eco-criticism is important to farm labor and understanding environmental justice and the very real experiences of environmental justice, injustice that farm workers have from, as you mentioned, all the things you get from living in the Central Valley, those higher rates of asthma, exposures to pesticides, pesticides in the drinking water, pesticide drink, drift in the air, 
uh, and the heat stroke, the life expectancy of farm workers is 46. I mean, farm workers have hard, hard lives. And a lot of that comes down to environmental injustice and it's exacerbated by climate change. You know, we've all seen, well, many of us have seen those pictures of farm workers out in the wildfire smokes continuing to pick. And I think about this summer, there were pictures of farm workers. We knew farm workers, they're out picking in wildfires in COVID-19, you know, pandemic. And it some was. of them still aren't getting masks. I mean, even if a mask would make that much difference in those conditions. Yeah, I think um, where, you know, where I am in the Fresno area, we definitely took the cake for the most apocalyptic uh, <laughs> time period in the, during the Creek fire. Um, because, you know, it's, we're, it's the pandemic. So everything, and at that point, it was still very much in the heat of it. It's raining ash. There's people out in the field still working and I, they're a short drive away from me to, to see that. And so it was just this, this kind of dark vision. But then, you know, I mean, that's California. And then the next week, you know, the weather's beautiful again and we forget, you know, and that's, that's kind of the danger of California. We have these uh, big apocalypses and then the next week we have sunshine and swimming pools. Um, so it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's something you have to be vigilant about. Uh, because we have short memories here, um, which maybe is the big metaphor for California is short memories. Um, can, let's, I want to take like a 10,000 foot perspective. Um, so when, we, when, when you think about the work you do um, and think about focusing on this particular domain of California history, which is farm labor, um, how, how do you look at California history differently? Um, having done all this research and looked at farm labor and think about the state itself. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, where we are in our kind of chronological history of California is we're kind of talking about the gold rush um, and some of the ideas around, you know, coming to California and striking it rich. And, um, but also, you know, the work that we're highlighting that shows that the gold rush is also a period of ethnic strife, uh, loss of land, land rights, um, but there, but I want to I, I want to probe into that because I think I'm, I'm sure you have a different perspective of California history uh, given your research and your work. And you know, I went to high school in California. Um, I went to high school in Southern California in Torrance, California. And when I discovered the author Hisai Yamamoto and her writing, you know, she's writing about that area, and she's writing about areas that you know, were agricultural fields in the 30s that are not now. And she's also writing about, she has this piece called Life Among the Oil Fields, where she's talking about the oil um, industry in that area, which is still present. There are still refineries there, but they are not the sort of image you have of Southern California, right? I, even growing up there and seeing these refineries, I thought beaches, and so I think there's a way in which our larger popular culture representation of California overlooks all of these different kinds of landscapes of labor and both labor and environmental exploitation that are found throughout the state. Um, we have a long history of romanticizing things in the state from romanticizing the, you know, I think about all those 
that mission projects, right? In California schools, in the fourth grade, you build a mission, uh, all the street names that have this very romantic vision of sort of Mexicanist that overlooks this taking of land and the violence of the Mexican-American War, and then the violence before that of um, an ongoing violence of indigenous genocide and displacement and the resilience and survivance of native peoples through that. So I think California history is really, really layered and the popular conception of the state and its beauty and bounty comes from ignoring indigenous land rights and the hard, hard labor of many people that produce that very landscape, this idea that it's somehow nature, this sort of a natural bounty, again, that power of the language of what's natural that erases how much human labor goes into everything and how much environmental exploitation fuels that uh, labor. I think I mean, to sort of connect this to what we were talking about earlier with eco-criticism and farm labor, I think that eco-criticism is important not just for understanding exploitation, but for uh, an ethics of justice and environmentalism that can come out of that. And I think about Helena Maria Viramontes' novel, Under the Feet of Jesus. And in her novel, one of the, the big metaphors is around oil and the farm workers Estrella sort of comes to realize that it's her bones that are her that are being turning into the fossils that are being ground up that are putting the gas in people's cars to let their lives keep on going in the way that they're accustomed and that there's a real link I think between these different forms of exploitations and the possibilities for envisioning a different world that come through her writing and help us understand what how California could look different in the 21st century a more just vision of the future. It's a little bit like, um, you know, I uh, just watched um, in the pandemic, you know, we've all gotten into weird things. Um, I've gotten into opera in a significant way. And I just watched uh, Philip Glass's opera about Akhenaten. And so I've got these Egyptian things in my brain. And so I'm, I'm kind of thinking like California history is a, a little bit, a, a lot of it has been kind of looking at like these single layers, right? Uh, where you have this kind of... <laughs> <laughs> if you look, focusing on Silicon Valley and Hollywood or focusing on these, but there are all these layers that make it up, right? Um, these, you know, kind of steps on in the kind of that hieroglyphic ladder. Um, and if you just focus on the bounty as opposed to the people in the kitchen that made it, you know, I think, I think that's uh, part of the, that what I'm trying to dispel is that, you know, it's, while the myths are important and, you know, the myths come from somewhere and there is people that have come to California, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, people coming to San Francisco from all over the world uh, that were LGBTQ people that were look, came to a place that was like, you know, the Castro in the 60s and 70s. It was like a safe, you know, somewhat, not really, but safer than Nebraska. Um, if you think about that perspective, you know, that these, there are those stories, but you know, there are other stories too. And it's really just about telling each of them and not just focus on the ones that make us feel okay. Um, and that's, that, I guess that's what I'm trying to do. And it sounds like what you're trying to do as well. 
Uh, yeah, I think that's very important. That sort of idea that you can't tell one story and you can't have this teleological sort of grand narrative of history where we're sort of everything's always getting better or everything's always getting worse. I think we need to have a kind of history that is grounded in the perspectives and experiences of many different kinds of people at different kinds of positions and understand those connections. How do you hold that? I mean, I want I want Steven Pinker to be right. I, I, you know, but then you watch these last two weeks and you think, well, the violent, you know, I, and obviously it's media construed, but anyway, um, let's, let's finish uh, by talking about books. We've already talked about books basically this entire uh, show, but maybe let's uh, to kind of recap if, if you're, if, if the listener wants to pick two or three of the many books that have been recommended that should be the first stop in this kind of learning journey. What, what, are the, what are the two or three most important that you've mentioned so far? You will not be surprised to hear me say that I think everyone should go pick up Helena Maria Veramontes' Under the Feet of Jesus. I think it's one of the most important books about California farm labor that we have. It's a novel and it's beautiful and engaging and touches on so many different things that we've talked about, including the history of California farm labor and the many different groups of people that have labored in the fields of California and environmental justice, uh, it would be my, my first stop. Uh, I also would recommend Maria Loza's Defiant Braceros. Um, there are many, many good books on the history of farm labor. I think that is one of the best. And as I mentioned before, I think it's really crucial reading right now as we're talking about what whether or not there should be a new guest worker program in the U.S. to look at the history of guest worker programs. Um, and finally, I would recommend Sarah Berwin Horton's um, They Leave Their Kidneys in the Fields as a way of thinking about farm worker health issues and chronic illness. All right. Well, to close, where can people find uh, your books and what project are you currently working on? So my books are available at... I'm sure it's available on Amazon. I would also encourage you to get books from your local independent bookstore um, and Powell's Books in uh, Portland, Oregon is an independent bookstore that's easily accessible online, but there is guaranteed to be near you an independent bookstore that would love business and many of them can get academic books, um, which my first book is The Nature of California, which is on farmers and farm workers. And I, my second book is an anthology called Latinx Environmentalisms that get at that idea of diverse forms of environmental thinking. I am currently working on a book on the outdoor equity movement or the movement to diversify access to public lands and outdoor recreation, which is a lot of grassroots groups like Outdoor Afro, Latino Outdoors, and the hashtag diversify outdoor movement on social media. Great. Well, thanks for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Dr. Sarah D. Wald. As always, you can support the podcast by leaving us a rating and review. That goes a long way to helping people push play for the first time. You can also support us financially at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. Both of those ways of supporting the podcast go a long way to making it sustainable for the long term. We'll see you next time.